You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 390 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Ernesto Tagworker is the founder of Ombu Labs, the Ruby on Rails development shop behind fastruby.io. When he is not playing table tennis or chess, he likes to maintain a few Ruby gems, including Ruby Critic and Skunk. He is passionate about paying off technical debt, contributing to open source and eating empanadas. Welcome back to the show, Ernesto. Hey, thanks for having me back. It is so great to have you back. And I'm so curious, what has changed since you were last on the podcast, which was episode 309 back in March 2020? Oh, man. Well, there's a global pandemic like everybody knows. Uh, So I think a lot of things have changed in the sense of my company. I want to say like we're happy and fortunate that the pandemic didn't really affect us that much. We were remote even before the pandemic started. So we did notice a bunch of our clients switched to remote full time and definitely it was disruptive to them. But for us, we got lucky and our business continued to grow. And we are currently 20 people at the company. And I think when we last spoke, we were close to 12 at the company. So you mentioned that the company's doing well. I'm curious with the fairly crazy labor market that's going on right now for Rails developers, how has that affected your company? Yeah, wow. It has definitely made the scenario more competitive. We like to say we were remote before it was cool and before it was necessary to function as a business. But yeah, these days everybody's remote and we have to up our game and get better at communicating all the cool things we do and all the benefits that we offer. And it's definitely made us focus a lot more on communications and that's definitely helped us find the right talent to grow. That makes sense. So to put it in other words, it's harder right now to find talent to grow the team, but probably in terms of finding clients, it's probably easier. Yeah, that's true. Now companies are more open to working with a remote team. You know, they usually ask us, you know, like, oh, where are you based? I'm like, well, we're based all over and we're like in South Africa, the U.S., Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Portugal, Spain. So depending on the client, we might just decide which engineer to use. We recently started working with some clients in Australia and we decided to put an engineer that is closer to their time zone. So certainly like companies are now more open to working with companies that are remote and they don't need to be like in the same city that they're in. So I'm curious from your side, who is the ideal customer for FastRuby? What kind of project would you like to be taking on? So what we like to see in our clients and our Rails applications is good test coverage. Like when we look at a Rails application, we need to quickly assess whether we're getting ourselves into a mess or we're getting ourselves into a project that is ready to succeed. So we get clients that are running Rails 3, Rails 2.3, Rails 4.0, and they're like, okay, we need help upgrading to Rails 4.2 and 5.2 and, and so on. So one of the things that we look at before we say like, okay, yeah, we can work on your project is your code coverage metric. If it is zero or 10%, then you're not the right fit for our services. We can help you improve your test suite. We can't really help you upgrade your application because we rely heavily on tests. 
And we do that to save our clients money. If we were not relying on tests, we would spend a lot more time trying to learn what the business does, doing manual QA, manual smoke testing, and that just runs up the cost of the project. So we would like to use the test suite. And when we see that the test suite is not up to our quality standards, we tell our potential clients that we can't really work on them until they improve their test suite. That makes total sense. Now, how about yourself? Are you actually still committing code or have you been focused on managing the team? Yeah, I have been doing a lot more management these days than coding. So I've been trying to coach and mentor my software engineers to become better engineers. I still can commit code to open source project mostly these days. But I try really hard to not get involved in committing code to client projects because these days I feel like I can add the most value by working with my engineers, assessing the situation, helping them get out of sticky situations. One of the things that we're working on actively is becoming better open source co-maintainers. We maintain a few projects ourselves, become involved in other open source projects that we didn't start. So we actually have built a team internally that focuses on being better maintainers of other people's open source projects. And we ended up becoming co-maintainers of projects that have been abandoned in the code quality part of the Ruby ecosystem. So yeah, that's why I thought it was an interesting topic to talk to you about code quality and open source and all that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think code quality is used so readily. It's one of those things almost like increased test coverage. Everybody nods their heads and they're like, yeah, yeah, I believe in code quality. I believe in test coverage and things like that. But it means different things to different people. So from your side, Ernesto, what does code quality mean to you? To me, when I look at a project and I try to determine whether it has code quality, I think, well, does it do what it's supposed to do? And it's like, yes, it does what it's supposed to do. Cool. And does it let me change it easily? If I need to change a little field in this page, can I just go in and tweak it, tweak the test and have it run in a few minutes? And if the answer is yes, to me, as an engineer, it has quality. Now, I know that there are ISO standards to talk about code quality. And I really like this one that talks about the eight dimensions of code quality. And it says something like, yes, there is code quality if the project or the code is maintainable, it's portable, it functions, has performance, it is compatible with other systems, it's usable, it's reliable, and it's secure. Now, that in itself, you can dive deeper into each one of those dimensions. But I think that's kind of covers it all. But when I think about, you know, does this project have code quality? I think about it and I say, okay, can I maintain it easily? And if I can, then I can say that, yes, this code is quality code. Those eight dimensions are so interesting. To me, code quality, like the first couple of words I think about is consistency, which you're right. Is it easy to maintain? But how many developers on the team know in their heads how this one part of the system works instead of the code itself being incredibly clear about how it works. And I think that's a really difficult problem to tackle when we have so many Ruby on Rails applications out there just being maintained by a few team members. 
Yeah. And I love the opposite question. Like, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, when do you know there's no quality in the code? I think for me, I do a lot of tier three support. And so all of the bugs that are getting filed by customer support, I'm usually the first person to read them. And if I'm not able to quickly identify what error is tied to the issue, or I'm not able to identify where in the code base this error is getting triggered from, I think that's a really good sign that you might not have quality code. What do you think? Uh, I like that. Yeah, I like the idea of when you find an error, trying to determine like where it is. And if you can't find it, yeah, I guess a few minutes or hours, then it becomes clear that, okay, there's something going on in this code base. For me too, it's also consistency of the error. One of my least favorite things is when someone will come to me and say, hey, this code is not working sometimes. It's that sometimes that absolutely kills me because it's like it either needs to be broken all the time or or work consistently. And then that's the situation where you might have like a flapping test. And as soon as you get into situations where your CI is not running consistently, that also is a really good indicator that you might not have quality code. I love this idea because at the same time, the test suite has code quality because it is code. So when you think about flaky tests, you think about it in a way that, well, does this test suite cover 80% of the code base? Yes. Okay. Awesome. It does. But then you go and you try to run the test suite and it's like, it does cover 80% of the code, but it completes like three out of 10 times it will complete without a flaky spec. So that's definitely like something to be aware of when you're looking at a test suite. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, It is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. HoneyBadger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. HoneyBadger sends you alerts real-time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to HoneyBadger.io and discover how HoneyBadger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great, error-free products. So I'm curious, we have a lot of members in the Ruby and Rails community that have carved out niches for themselves that are very specific. And really, in some ways, just by running FastRuby.io, like that's very much a niche. And code quality is a lot more nebulous to define. So why have you carved out a niche for yourself on the topic of code quality? Yeah, that's true. Like, I really love the work that Jason Sweat has done with Rails testing and Nate Verkopek has done with Rails performance. They have been great inspirations for us at FastRuby.io. So when we pick the Rails upgrade niche, we're trying to focus on a vertical Based on some real experience, like we had worked with some clients on upgrading their Rails applications, and we noticed these could be like 12 developer month projects. And I think what we focused on in in the area of code quality was more on like the dependency technical debt. 
And it worked very well. Like we have been writing and sharing our recipes for years. And a lot of people out there might have seen articles in the fastruby.io blog. And it was a natural next step for us. Like we started trying to assess whether our code base was a good fit for us. I love this analogy of the tar pit. If anybody wants to read about it, it's a book by Fred Brooks from like many years ago. But we were trying to avoid the tar pit. We're trying to avoid committing to upgrading a project and then jumping into it and then being like, oh my goodness, this is a mess. We told the client we're going to be done in six months and we missed all these little red flags. So in order to get better at that, we started getting more involved in the quality niche. That's how Skunk was born as a, an extension of Ruby Critic. That's how we ended up co-maintaining Rails stats, which is not the Rails stats native code, but more of another gem that doesn't really need Rails to run. And then a bunch of other gems that what they do is they help us analyze the client's code base and figure out whether we want to take the project or not. So like we love Code Climate and we use it sometimes, but we really wanted something open source that we could tweak and maintain to our own flavor. See, this is why I love this community so much. So essentially you developed a playbook of things that you wanted to look over a code base whenever you're deciding whether or not to take on a client. You realize that playbook was really effective. You built it into libraries and then you open sourced it, which is just absolutely incredible. I am curious, Ernesto, do you ever run these gems against a potential client and then show them essentially their scores and they're shocked? Yeah, some clients are shocked. At the end of the day, we use these tools to generate a code audit report. And the code audit report talks about a, a little bit about technical debt, about the action items we need to ship. And when they look at the estimates, some are shocked and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that it could take so long to upgrade all the way to Rails 6.1 because they're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Like they're saying like, oh, the application works on the front end, clients are happy and everything. But, you know, like the bottom of the iceberg is a huge mess and only one or two engineers and the team are comfortable making changes to the code base. Has it ever been bad enough where you've actually recommended that they start over? Or do you think that every Rails project can be saved? No, we're more of team refactor instead of rebuild. If you think about it, rebuilding can be done and we have done it for simple Rails applications. And I'm talking about like a CRUD application or something super simple that you use to basically maintain a spreadsheet. For all the people who reach out to us and all the potential clients that reach out to us, we're usually talking about companies that have been running Rails for at least 10 years and they have accumulated a lot of dependency tech debt and other tech debt and other process debt and all that. So yeah, I think people do get surprised a little bit when we share all the information that we find. And we like to cross-reference the test suite metrics with the code complexity metrics and then show them, hey, you have this seven files in the application that are super complex and have no code coverage. So these are likely to become roadblocks in the upgrade project. That makes total sense. That is so neat. I do want to dig into the whole open source aspect of what you're doing. 
So first of all, do you take the ThoughtBot approach of doing open source on Friday or is open source interweaved into all the time that you're spending with clients? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we love what ThoughtBot has done, but we're not quite there yet. At the moment, what we do is we dedicate at least two hours of our engineers time per month to open source projects. And we decided to start slow with this goal. Ideally, we want to get to a point where everybody's doing maybe eight hours per month of open source work and our open source team is tracking it and motivating our team to contribute. One of the things that we like to do at the company is to never assign anybody more than 30 hours per week to a client project. So that leaves time for our engineers to focus on improving their skills, contributing to open source, contributing to their internal teams. Just like we have the open source internal team, we have like the marketing internal team and all that. So we do have an open source team that has three people on that. And they do help triaging issues and pull requests and helping people make their contributions per month. But we're not quite at the point where we can dedicate one day per week to open source. So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, we recently had Ben Sheldon on episode 383 about being an open source maintainer. And I want to get your perspective. What does it look like to maintain all the libraries that you do? Like, are you getting a lot of open issues? Are you getting a lot of pull requests open? Is it a lot of noise for you on GitHub or have you pretty much like gotten a system down pat? I think what we're focusing on right now is just being consistent and having this internal team that triages issues and pull requests consistently. So we have three people and Monday, Wednesday and Fridays, they go in and they basically look at all the things that are happening and they try to push the work forward. I'm also on an honorary member of that team, but I think the focus right now is in being more active co-maintainers and nudging people to, even after they submit their contributions, to take it across the finish line. At the moment, the code quality gems are not really getting a lot of attention. I think the one that gets the most attention is Ruby Critic, and a lot of people are using it. So that one does get a few issues submitted every month. But there are a bunch of gems that we maintain these days that I think are not getting used that much. So Metric Foo is one of them. Rails Stats is the other one that we might use it for assessing projects, but a lot of people are out there, I think, are using other tools like probably Ruby Critic. Do you expect to see these code quality gems appear in gem files and regularly be run? Or is this something you just install locally and then from time to time you should be running them? Like how should they be integrated into your workflow? In my opinion, I think they should be a part of your project and you should be keeping track of a certain metric. And code quality is a controversial topic. You need to talk to your team and basically decide which code quality standard you're going to use. And then what you can do is you can define a configuration for your project and say, okay, we're going to keep track of Reek. We're going to keep track of Rubicop. We're going to keep track of complexity. And we're going to keep track of code coverage. And that's going to be our code quality standard. And once you define that standard and you define the metrics, I think you can start moving in a direction that, you know, gradually sanitizing the code base to become easier to maintain. 
But yes, I think that's the way it's supposed to go. And a lot of teams, you might not do that. A lot of teams might save this for like their annual spike on technical debt or something, which I don't think it's a good approach. But some teams might be like, okay, we need to focus on code quality this week. Let's find the gems to assess like what the smelliest code is. And let's find the smelliest code and let's add it to our Jira to to start tackling our technical debt. I think that approach is not great. What I recommend teams is that they have some time for sprint on uh, technical debt. So it becomes a habit to decrease technical debt as you ship features and you ship bugs and it becomes part of your culture. So yeah, I think teams are better off when they add the tools to their projects and maybe they even have CI run an assessment and tell the developer like, hey, when you're adding these changes, you're also decreasing code coverage. You're also increasing complexity in this method and it's actually shipping a feature but it's also increasing technical debt by X. Hi everyone, it's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know, Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites. An interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? Second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is, the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is, the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together, and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build a future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on Mirror clients, It'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. I'm curious, have you or any of your clients ever participated in the 30-day code quality challenge that Ben Orenstein puts on? Uh, I can say that I have, and I think it's like a really cool challenge. I got to admit that I probably did not finish the challenge. I think I started maybe like, and I did five days and then work got in the way and I didn't do it. But I love what Ben does and I love that challenge. So if you haven't done it, please go and do it. I totally agree with you. And Ernesto, I will confess to you that the same thing happened to me. So. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious. What did you accomplish in that challenge? Will you apply it to like a client project or an open source project? Yeah. So it was my own project. It was at the nonprofit that I was at for five years. And we ended up doing like a ton of readme changes. And we did have some open source libraries that we updated. So that was good. It was almost 
not necessarily getting the checklist done, but I just like the mindset of it. And so being able to communicate to that bot, to my boss, I need to set aside time to do this challenge. I think it's going to be good. Like only good things can result from focusing on code quality. And I think that's the message that you're trying to get across as well. And I think we as engineers need to do a better job communicating the value of these challenges and these sort of activities. I think we're pretty bad at communicating Hey, you know, if we paid off this technical debt, our engineers are going to be happier, our velocity is going to improve, and we're going to be able to ship more features in the upcoming sprints. I think that's something that we can work on. And what I like about using these tools and these open source tools is that the code is out there. They're very easy to configure and they're very easy to show. Like, hey, I shipped this feature and at the same time, I paid off some of this technical debt here. So now instead of having a huge 1000 lines of code file, we have like a few files that interact with each other in a more cohesive way. So I think we need to improve the way that we sell to our non-technical managers the value of paying off technical debt. I completely agree. So how can listeners support your work? Yeah, I think the best they can do to support our work is to actually go and use the tools. You know, we pay for people's open source time at the company, so we don't really need donations or any, anything like that. We value open source and it's been core to our business. So we have a policy that any project that we start should be open source unless there's like a really good reason not to make it open source. So most of the code these days that we do is open source, even for internal tools. What I can say is that we maintain a few gems and we would love any of your listeners to go and use them. So I can maybe share a list of gems that they could try. Skunk is one of them. Ruby Critic is another one. Metric Foo. And yeah, I think those are the ones that we're focusing on for code quality. So if you can go out there, use it on your application and then report back. If there are any issues, please do report them and we'll try to fix them. But if you found value in the information that you got using these tools, yeah, feel free to share that also as an issue in our projects. It's hard as maintainers to think about like issues because many times you only hear from people when things don't work. Or you only hear from people when they think like, oh, this project is garbage and I disagree with the idea behind it. So even if you want to submit an issue and say like, hey, this is pretty cool. I've been using it and I think it's awesome that you're maintaining it. You know, that's another thing that you could do to be thankful for the all the projects that are out there. I completely agree. And, you know, you heard first listeners, you know, this is your homework is to try out these gems. But I would also like to see blogs generated because we need more content from the Ruby community. So generating those blogs and talking about how taking a stance on code quality within your Ruby on Rails application kind of changed your perspective or how you talk to your boss about it. We need to have more content around this like out there. So I'd love to see stuff like that being tweeted out and featured in newsletters. I think that's another great way to get back to the community. Sometimes the community thinks like, oh, the only worthy contributions are open source contributions, but that's not true. Like there are so many articles out there that make our lives easier and they don't count in your GitHub contributor graph, but they're still so valuable. You know, we can Google things and find tutorials and stuff like that. So if you can go out there and write 
articles about these tools, that would be awesome too. I agree. And even for the junior developers out there, they're looking for their niche, like that one thing that's going to make them stand out on a resume. You can apply to a job and say, hey, I really care about quote quality. That's going to get you somewhere. So learning these tools is, you know, definitely a good idea. So Ernesto, I asked you this almost a year ago, a year and a half ago, and we'll see if your answer has changed at all. But what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? Yeah, I'm really excited about what's coming down the pipeline with Ruby 3 and Rails 7. It's nice to see Rails take a stand again against Webpacker. I mean, it's definitely controversial, but I think it's important to have these controversial ideas and discuss them and think about like what the pros and cons are. I'm really excited to see the changes that came with the 3x3 Ruby initiative. In recent projects, we've seen so many performance improvements as we upgraded a client from Ruby 1.9 to Ruby 3.0. So that's super exciting to see like Ruby becoming more and more performant. And also I'm excited to see like there's definitely been a switch of the engineers that are using Ruby and Rails. And yes, there are a lot of people using JavaScript and Elixir and all that. but there are still a ton of Rails applications out there that are powering tools that we use day to day that you wouldn't even think of. So I think it's a great time to get into the Rails community. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And in terms of the code quality niche, I would say that if you want to get involved in open source, that is a really interesting niche because it has been overlooked for years and there are some projects out there that are really cool that have been abandoned and my company and myself are constantly looking for co-maintainers. So all it takes is for you to take the initiative, use the tool, find issues and reach out. And when you reach out, we'll be very welcoming because we love to build teams of co-maintainers for open source projects. I think one of the things we want to stay away from is just having one person be a maintainer of a project. And I think that's a mistake that open source contributors do very often. It's like they start a project, they start maintaining it, people use them, and then they never add people to their co-maintainers team. And then they go on vacation and they're like getting pinged about issues with their tools. And it's like, it's in your best interest to build a team of co-maintainers. So if you're out there and you want to get on working on open source, think about code quality as one niche that you can focus on. That's awesome. Speaking of reaching out, how can listeners follow you? You can follow me on Twitter. My handle is eTacWorker. Very non-creative, very <laughs> simple. And you can follow some of the work that we do as well in fastruby.io slash blog. We like to share a lot about the open source that we do over there and a lot about the upgrade path and dependency tech debt I talked about today. Well, Ernesto, it was so great to have you back on the show. And I just want to genuinely thank you for everything you and the Fast Ruby team has done for the community. I think it's so important to have these discussions about code quality and we'll definitely welcome you back soon. It was great to be here again. Thanks a lot for your time and thoughtful questions. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.